sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 739 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I have another interesting episode lined up for you today. Joining me on my guest on this week's episode of Accelerate is Kimberly Slavic. Kimberly is the author of a book titled Visnostic Sales and Marketing, The Power of Visualization Diagnostic Statements, a neuroscientific approach to communicating, training, selling, marketing, and leading. So in this episode, Kimberly and I are going to talk about the sales approach she developed called Visnostics. And it's based on this premise that, that your customers' perspectives are going to vary based on the individual. Each, everybody has their own way they look at life, and you never know who your audience is going to be. And Kimberly shares how she's developed Visnostics, which is short for Visualization Diagnostics, to help sellers learn how to present their messaging from the perspective of the buyer. I think she calls it translation, but it's, it's a way to, again, approach it from the perspective of the buyer as opposed to a seller's perspective. We're also going to spend some time discussing whether sales needs professional standards, like so many other industries. You know, should sales managers and sellers be required to pass a certification test in order to get a license to sell? Um, you know, I've had other guests on the program. We've discussed this idea. It's, I'm intrigued by the idea at some level. I'm not sure how we go about it yet, but I think it's a conversation worth having. So we'll get to that and much, much more. But before we get to Kimberly, want to take a moment to talk about VanillaSoft, one of our sponsors here. VanillaSoft is the industry's leading sales engagement platform, and they know that sales today is all about speed. And that's why you need to download their guide on how to optimize your speed to lead. That's the title of it, how to optimize your speed to lead. You can get it now at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. Unlike traditional offerings, VanillaSoft does things a little bit differently. They've eliminated the list that the cherry pickers and sales love. Instead, each sales development rep automatically gets fed the next best lead based on that moment in time. And VanillaSoft instantly reacts to external triggers like buyer intent data and push those leads to the front of the queue. And they automatically revise your lead cadence for your entire team when management shifts its priorities, such as the usual end of the quarter push to hit target. So it's all about speed. So download their guide. They'll teach you how to optimize your speed to lead. Again, that's the title of it, how to optimize your speed to lead. You can get yours now at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. That's me. All right. Let's jump into it. Kimberly, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Andy. It's good to be here. Good to see you. So um, tell us a little bit about you. Just a little bit about your background and, and uh, what got you to this point. Well, I've been in IIT sales my entire career, which is a really long time. And I've not not that a- long. I, I, <laughs> I did the math. You have a ways to go before you catch up to me, but go ahead. <laughs> Boy, the stories we could share, I'm sure. Um, but I, I um, have been in leadership roles the last 12 years, and I thought it might be a good idea to take a year off and try and just document some of the things to make myself a better leader. And when I was circulating the draft of my first attempt at that, I started getting people hiring me to come teach the principles. So that's how this whole crazy world started. And it was October mm-hmm. of last year, and it's just been a whirlwind. Okay. But selling is selling is my passion. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of the way things happen. So um, what inspired you then to, to write the book? I mean, you said you were taking a break, but was it specifically to write the book or did you have this you know, idea in mind for a long time? Hey, I want to write this particular book. I've got something to say. And here we go. Well, it, it was kind of a weird situation because at this stage of your career, it's really hard to put all your accomplishments on a one page resume, but no one's going to read a eight page resume. So I thought, well, I'm going to go at a complete extreme and not only document what I've done, but I'm going to explain how I do things. And that's how the the book evolved. It was going to be more of a leadership tool for me to share with my team. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had never in a million years, I'm not a writer, don't want to be a writer, never had any aspirations to be a writer. And I have five books right now and three more that I'm, I'm in the middle of writing right now. <laughs> All in the last year. Yeah. The first book was published in February. So it hasn't even, I haven't even had books out a year yet. Interesting. So you've got uh, eight books now. It's taken me... I'm working on my th- my third book. It's taken me probably six months from start to finish. So what am I doing wrong? Why? How are you able to write so many books so quickly? Well, I don't have a podcast that's so popular, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> but, I mean, this is like, I mean, I, I'm sort of drawing the analogy, like to Van Gogh. You know, Van Gogh, we're so familiar with all of his paintings. And actually, he you know, did almost all of his famous paintings within about a year, a uh, period of time. And that was... That was it. So it's like you're having this burst of creative energy. Well, so Viznostics is is the focus. I do have one separate book that's on leadership. It's called Memoirs of an Angry Sales Pro, and it's it's about sales leadership has to change. But the Viznostics series, when when I first put the first book out, I started getting a lot of naysayers that said, "Yeah, but you sold two billion dollars of very complex IT stuff. This doesn't apply to me." So I wanted to prove a point that it applies to everybody. So I did two special edition books specifically on uh, real estate was the first one. And then the second one was on auto sales because those are two really big sales, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sales fields and they were huge successes. So I'm doing a lot of specialty books. Like I'm doing, I'm, the one I'm writing right now is for the food service industry because Massey is, is a big client of mine. So as people um, do workshops with me and I become a keynote speaker, one of the things I provide is a customized book for their events or their, their vertical market. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why do you think you're getting pushback people saying, well, this doesn't apply to what we do? <laughs> because it's human nature to have mental barriers. And a lot of people, especially salespeople, are their own worst enemies. 
So a lot of salespeople would just say, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. And I wanted to prove that it, it can work for you. Well, and that'd be the case about anything new, really, with salespeople, isn't it? More than anything else, is, regardless of what the specific methodology is, it's more often than not, it's just like just having an open mind to something new. Yes, it's true. And then one of the books was, so the original book that came out was called Visnostic Selling. And it's a very interactive book. So I encourage the readers to reach out to me. And in the first four months of people reaching out, I had a whole book of success stories in very unique, original ways that people were using it. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would much rather write about other people's successes with Visnostics than mine. So the new book um, that's replacing Visnostic Selling is called Visnostic Sales and Marketing. It's twice the size because it's mostly reader success stories, really creative ways they're using it too. Okay. Well, we're going to jump in on just a second. Let's, let's, I want to ask a question about, so you wrote this book about why you think sales leadership needs to change. So A, yeah, I'm sure we all have our opinions about why it needs to change. What, what's your take on it? Well, so I really didn't know where I was going with that book and I didn't know that I was even going to publish that one. It was more of a therapy book and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a complaint you know, a bunch mm-hmm. of whining and complaining for every problem that I observed or I identified, I tried to come up with a solution. And if I could summarize that book and where it kind of guided my thought process and my logic is that sales is a very unusual profession. It's the number one profession in the world, you know, and there's not a real uh, regulatory agency around it. Like to be an attorney, you can get your law degree, but you've got to pass a bar exam in each state if you Mm. want to practice. And if you misbehave, you can have that taken away from you. And what I'm proposing is we've got to up the game on sales standards. And when people behave badly, then that needs to be taken away. But it's been my observation in the last... So just managers or salespeople as well? Salespeople too, but I would say the you know I've worked with some amazing salespeople. Mm-hmm. I've worked I worked with fewer amazing sales managers, and it's kind of like that old adage you know those that can do those that can't teach. A lot of times people just they end up in a sales leadership position and they really aren't qualified to do it. Well, who's who's responsible for that? <laughs> I think for one thing, I mean I'm how I. And my career was as an individual contributor as a salesperson. Mm-hmm. The least amount of money I made and the most hours I worked was as a sales leader. Mm-hmm. And that's, those are some of the things that really need to change. If you want to attract top talent and top tier sales leadership, then it's got to be worth their time. And, and so, it, and sorry, we just had a little bit of a garble on the, the connection. So what you're saying is, is that we should be promoting... I mean, because this, this is always the conundrum is, you know, companies are sort of faced with this, this, hey, am I going to take my best people and turn them into managers, which oftentimes, as we know, does is not a fit. Does, how do they really identify? Because I think this is a, a pressing issue, especially today, is how do companies identify the people who are best suited for sales management roles? And I, mm-hmm. and I mean, you make the point, it's about pay, but is it really about pay or is it about something else? Well, I mean, one of the things I write about in the very first few paragraphs is the average sales leader, is, VP of sales position, is less than a year now in Silicon Valley, and just a few years ago was 18 months. 
And it, I mean, it's got to be the most unstable job there is. You know, the, the bullets are coming downhill, uphill and sideways at you. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, you're, you're just a political body shield um, is what I've observed. Yeah, so that's yeah. We've all seen the statistics again. Whether it's twelve months, eighteen months, it's it's short, right? It's it's hard for anybody to put their stamp on an organization um, from a leadership mm-hmm. perspective in, in such a short period of time. It seems like we're sort of in this self fulfilling prophecy circle, or is there's a vicious cycle? Is that yeah, we put people into impossible situations, expect them to form miracles without being given the opportunity to develop their team, develop the skills of their team, and so on. And do you see that? I mean, I sort of, my fear is I see that spreading beyond Silicon Valley and beyond the tech industry into you know, other industries as well. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, the big question is, how are we going to fix it? How do we address this problem? And, you know, how do we make it change? And so, yeah, tell me. <laughs> well, I'm only one person, but I'm, you know, putting it in writing and hopefully spreading the word and getting more people engaged. A couple of the ways that I'm, I'm making my goal is, you know, out of, out of 14 million salespeople in the world, there's only 120 universities that offer sales leadership degrees. And I'm trying to get involved with as many of those universities as I can to help them make sure that they've got the right curriculum. Because right now, um, one of the professors I've been working with, um, a gentleman named John Kratz out of the University of Minnesota of Duluth, he said that regardless of what degree you get, 50% of all college graduates are going into sales careers now. And as a sales leader, we would hire these college grads. And what do you think we had to do? Here they are, you have their college degree. We're having to send them away for a month for additional education. So at a collegiate level, Corporate America and the universities need to get on the same page as far as the curriculum to make sure that the people coming out are ready to hit, you know, are ready. Yeah, I'm sort of interested with the guy's statistics. I'm not sure I buy the buy the data that 50% of college grads are going into sales because the number of people, at least in the B2B sales world, the number is fairly stable if, in terms of employment. But um, yeah, it's always there this this issue is that is there any value in training undergraduates? And so we'll just stick to sales. The only thing that I'm really familiar with myself is is yeah. Personally, I sort I see the value of a sales degree. I don't necessarily see the value of a sales management degree. And maybe they're both the same thing. I mean, I've I've spoken to college classes that you know in universities that have a sales a sales degree and. Mm-hmm. Even the classes I'm talking to is those who are majoring in sales. Only a, less than a half were even intending to go into sales. I mean, I found that mm-hmm. found that sort of interesting. So I think we have this issue rather than having. That's why I was sort of taking issue with the gentleman from Minnesota is that I I think we have a bigger issue just attracting people into sales, let alone being concerned about have so many graduates coming into the profession. I agree. I actually talk about that in the first part of the book too. You know. Colleges and universities are businesses, and it's a supply demand. So, I mean, when was the last time you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up? And very few say they want to be a sales manager or a salesperson. And mm-hmm. John Burroughs, he just wrote a really good book. It's a child, a children's right. book saying, "I want to be a salesperson when I grow up." So that's a good start, you know, to 
to help educate children and, and really parents, because they're the ones a lot of times that are paying the tuition. If parents don't start thinking, yeah, I want my kid to be a salesperson, then that demand's still going to stay pretty low. <laughs> well, but it's it's funny. It's, it's sort of a profession, I don't know about you and your background, that the people sort of fall into, though. Um, yeah, certainly from people I've interviewed on this show is is amazing how many start off as teachers, for instance, and then found their way into sales. Uh, and people, you know, quite successful at sales. I mean, I started in sales, but had no in, no idea that that's what I would do. I mean, when I graduated college, I had absolutely no idea that that'd be in sales, let alone spend decades doing it. So, um, yeah. So I, the broader idea, though, I think is is an interesting one. I've I've sort of gone back and forth on that myself. Is is whether certification of salespeople, so sort of you know regulatory. Um, Issue like lawyers or granted they're you know self governing bodies, but lawyers and doctors and accountants and so on is is um, yeah is that really the answer? I mean, it's 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 intriguing on one hand for the reason you said is that you you know create a profession around it, you have professional standards, but it's it's hard to imagine given how soft the skills are that. Um, that's something we could really enforce. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, the, you're right already, right? But when I think about, you know, you can't even cut hair without a license. Mm-hmm. And if you, don't, if you don't do things right, you can get that license revoked. And the same thing with digging a trench. You can't dig a trench to put in pipes pipeline, right? Unless you're certified and you understand all the safety precautions and so forth. And even those expire, it's an ongoing continued education. CPA, you can't be a CPA without getting your passing your CPA test. You can have an accounting degree, but you got to pass the CPA. Sure. And even then you've got to maintain it and continue your education to maintain your credentials. But with salespeople, and there's a lot of bad behavior that, you know, I talk about in the, in the book sure, that I've observed. It. There's no consequences for bad behavior in our industry. And you get, well, you there get, was the certification. You get, you get fired. In theory. Yeah. <laughs> it's been my experience that it's they're 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 pretty forgiving. If a deal gets closed, the behavior around it is <laughs> held at a high yeah. standard. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's there's certainly some of that. Um well I just I guess my my thing is and I've had this conversation with some other guests on the show, including some people that have are started organizations try to do this the certification, and and the difference between yeah, you know, say a lawyer or a doctor. A doctor, you know, I I don't know how much of my wife is a professor of medical school, and I'm not sure how much of the you know medical exams, licensing exams, really come down to judgment as opposed to knowledge. You know, sort of hard knowledge, hard skills, and. Um, you know, similar with you know the bar exam, which is all based on case law and you know sort of factual, and we're in this profession that's so everything's so subjective. Mm. Is is for me? It just sort of raised the question: Is yeah, could we? What what could we test? Right? That's because it's like almost like artwork to me. Is is uh, you know because it's such a creative profession. Is you know it's like well okay we create a. Certification for salespeople, it's like saying we're going to create a certification for 
novel writers or something like that? I mean, how do, how do you know what's good? You know, I think there needs to be, and I think it's starting from what I'm observing, there needs to be a stronger connection between corporate America and the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you ask me what I'm doing about it. Uh, UTD here in, sure. I'm, I'm in the Dallas area. Um, yeah, I, know, I know Howard Dover. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so impressed with Dr. Dover and the program that he's put in place. So, you know, I've gotten involved in, in his program just recently mm-hmm. and, I'm trying to get involved with as many of the 120 um, universities as I can to see what I can do to help in any way I can. Sure. And I'm also going to be learning, you know, what their challenges are because it's all a brand new world to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's an evolving space. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Dover, Howard Dover and University of Texas Dallas has, has got a great program going on there that, that is to your point earlier is very much tied to servicing the demands of the local community for people, certain skill sets in sales, which is, is what we need. I mean, if we can, for me, sort of the, you know, ideal and one of the frustrations is that we seem to, I think to a point you had made earlier is we seem to spend an inordinate amount of time sort of just teaching new cadre of salespeople that come in to some of the basics that seem like they should be almost second nature by now. Um, mm-hmm. when they come out of education or wherever they're, you know, college, wherever they're being educated. Uh, and if we could, yeah, if we could shorten some of that learning curve, that'd be, that'd be ideal. And maybe get people to, to stay in the profession longer. Um, all right, well, let's talk, talk about your book. So what's, what's the premise behind Viznostics? Why don't you tell us what sort of the, inspired you to write the book? Well, like I said, I've been selling for, you know, a million years. Mm. <laughs> and so, when I first started, and it was in the 80s, when I first started, it was all about relationship selling. So Dale Carnegie was big. Jim Cecil, have a love affair with your customer was big. And then we kind of moved into the consultative sale where we were asking a lot of questions to the clients and getting more strategic, blue sheets from strategic selling, thin selling. Um, and then, you know, Sandler training came up in the, the early 2000s. Like all this training has been wonderful. There's always good pieces to everything I've ever learned. But the one thing I I always found myself doing as a salesperson was I read these really great books, but they were, I felt like they weren't written by salespeople. I felt like they were written by theorists and they were really good theory. But what I had to do was translate what I was reading into how was I going to execute this stuff. Well, so, so, so give me an example of that. So what, what were the ones that, if you can, pick one, and not that we're going to pick on anybody, but that's fine, is mm-hmm. what, what was one example that you're encountering that you felt there was this gap between theory and execution? Sure. So I talk about three of the books. The Challenger Cell is one of them. Simon Sinek's Start With Why. And uh, Michael Bosworth's um, What Great Sales People Do. Those are three recent books that... You know, I found myself going, okay, now how, what does this really mean and how does this translate? And so the book that I wrote, Viznostics, is wrapped around those three books on how to take that theory and actually execute. So the Challenger Cell, I think philosophically is solid, which is if you go in and tell a customer, like consultative selling, I, I witnessed this firsthand, I did this, mm-hmm. you know, where you do all your research, you've asked all these questions, and you go in and you present, you're so proud because you're presenting everything that you you know, researched about them and you don't get invited back to the, the next meeting because you didn't tell them anything of value that they didn't already know about. 
And so the challenger sell, that was the main, main takeaway from them was how do you challenge customers and clients to do things differently? How do you execute that principle? And that's what one of the, the things that I tackle in the book. The other one is Simon Sinek's Start With Why. I have been in leadership where we embrace that book to come up with our mission statements and all these things. But in selling, what does that mean? What is the why? And what my books teach is the why is the result. The customers don't care what you do. They care about the results of what you do. And then what great salespeople do is about storytelling, which everybody's got to spend on storytelling. That is like the thing right now. But what, what exactly and how exact, what is the formula for a really solid, good story? And when I started reflecting back on my entire career, the one thing I noticed over and over again is that I would go with my deck, with my PowerPoint slide that marketing gave me, mm-hmm. and I was telling my story and putting people into comas. And what I'm realizing is what we really need to do is take our story and translate it into our audience world and make it our story, their story. Mm-hmm. And that's in a nutshell what Biznostics is. Challenging by articulating it in a, in a specific pattern, which I, I teach people in Biznostics to pick out the results. Results, timeline, and then the rest of the stuff that you do. So what do the clients get out of it? What's the results? How quickly do they get those, those results? And then go into what you do. Our brains and our society have wired us to just start vomiting what we do. And then kind of as a side note saying, and you'll save millions of dollars if you do what we do. I'm teaching people to flip that. And the reason that that's so important is that the attention span, everyone's talking about that too. And the Gen Zs are graduating. They just came out their first class Mm -hmm. or 25% of the population. You and me, we had a 12 second attention span. The millennials were down to eight. Everyone knows the goldfish has nine second attention span and the Gen Z's have a three second attention span and they're very they're very much about them themselves you know Instagram and Facebook and social media it's all about impressing everyone around you so those first words of what you can do in your story has to be results that are going to make their life better so that's why I took three books and turned it into execution okay um yeah so so a question is is so this is one of the things that that always troubles me with so much of what I I read and yeah I'm probably guilty of it to some degree as well is is so take millennials for example there's been a huge mischaracterization in my mind about about this generation about yeah we take easy facts and figures like attention span and so on and 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 I have to say I. I don't, I don't buy it personally, right? See, because I think that there's an assumption in there, and I, I said I, I, I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well, and things that I've written. But I wonder if we make a, a mistake in assuming that that uh, people have changed so much. I mean, it's it's yeah. We talk about how selling has sort of evolved, and you gave some good examples of books that that um, and sort of the transitions in sales training emphasis let's say or sales perspectives you know from relationship selling blah 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 blah. but i think what that idea of relationship 
is because there's yeah we're starting to go through this period where people sort of poo poo relationship selling, but I wonder whether people really understood what that that meant. I mean, to me, there's there's this whole idea of relationship selling is you know we take the customer to lunch, we play golf, we you know we bond over these extracurricular activities, which I agree that's done you know the three martini lunch and unless you're in certain industries is probably completely gone. But for me, yeah, I I believe that everything revolves around relationship and sales. Yes, but there's different kinds of relationships. So you and me, we're used to -to face-to-face. We're used to, you ask a question and it's rude if I don't respond quickly. You send an email and I need to be responsive. This new generation and ghosting, and it's almost (laughs) a... It's a thing. You don't want to text back right away and you don't want to seem too eager. And because in their communication, they have a difficult time, a more difficult time when they have a face-to-face situation. And, and, and this is coming up. It's been a topic of discussion. And believe me, I love millennials. My son's a millennial. Yeah. I, I think they've made us all up our game. And I think the Gen Zs are going to make us up our game. So it's not a complaint. And Morris Macy... I don't know if you're familiar with Morris Macy, but you know I, I talk about him in the book as mm-hmm. well. Back in the 70s, he was talking about you are who you are because of where you were when, and he was talking about World War people that you know grew up during World War II and they had to you know give up their pots and pans to make ammunition. Mm-hmm. That is a different kind of generation. I can't even relate to what those poor people went through during the World Wars. So you know there are differences. Sure. You know, Absolutely. But I just wonder is that where I see it sort of wrapped in where I'm, where I'm interested because, you know, you've got a tremendous amount of experience in sales is, is I think we tend to make too much of the differences. You know, I, I, I love reading about, uh, you know, the course of human evolution and how people have evolved mm-hmm. and so on. And that's a process that's taken place over tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so this idea that people fundamentally changed over the course of a generation in terms of the way that we need to, you know, fundamentally change how we communicate is saying, instead of saying, look, there is still, granted, yeah, the idea of, of the old-time relationship selling, which I wouldn't even associate with Dale Carnegie. I would associate... Uh, I don't know who it associate with, but you know, certainly prevalent in the fifties, sixties. You know, Mad Men, yada yada yada. Um, yeah, that's gone by the way. But the way people still want to receive information and process it, the way they they evaluate risk in the way they make decisions, hasn't really mm-hmm. fundamentally changed. So I think each person. I, I the one thing I do like about what Morris Macy says is, "You are who you are because of where you were when." And he talks about, you know, the psychology of when you're a child, you, you know, you develop and you mimic your family. You start looking towards your peers and outside of your family for that um, influence. Mm-hmm. And then when, by the time you're 21, you are who you're going to be fundamentally to the core from a moral perspective and what's right and wrong and those kind of things. And it takes a significant event to change that. I do agree with you that. I think this cutoff, you know, if you're born from, you know, this date to 64, you're going to be this person in 65, like that gap between 64 and 65, I don't think it's that clear cut. I think it is a gradual thing, 
But I mean, look at us. When we missed, when we were children and we missed um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on TV, we had to wait a whole year before it came out again, right? Sure. These kids get a wild hair the, today. I don't even know how they find stuff. It's not just Netflix and Hulu and all these other things. They can find stuff online. They are on demand. And talking to the university, well, I talked to a guy the other day whose daughter because of how much he's spending. And he says, my daughter barely leaves her dorm room because they have a policy there. Like all of the classes are recorded now. Mm -hmm. And if you make it, great. If you don't, you do an on-demand and get to watch the replay. I mean, we didn't have that. I didn't have that when I was in college. So even education is is getting this on-demand mentality towards this generation because that's how they, that's all they know is on-demand. So I do think that. Um, the one thing I, I do want to share with you, there's a story in my book about the history of this Gnostics, like how did this whole thing come about? Mm-hmm. And this is really, you know, even if you don't believe in the millennial and the Gen Z and the baby boomer and all that, that's cool. I don't have a problem with that. But one thing is for sure our audience is always going to be different and you never know what your audience is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I had this period of time in my career where I was selling the perfect dream software. Everyone wanted it. I mean, I was kind of just, I was going through the motions. I was so arrogant and confident because everyone bought what I just put my slides up there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, how fast can we get it? But this one guy fell asleep during my presentation and I was like, what is wrong with him? And of course he was embarrassed. He said, come back. And I came back and he, this time he was taking notes and I was all excited. So I went over to see what he was writing. He was doing his grocery list. So he <laughs> still wasn't engaged. And I left there so mad at myself that I left there. And I was like, what did I do wrong? He was different than all my other audience. My other audience was taking my messaging and translating it and why they cared. This guy was got, had something on his mind or distraction where he he was in he was not capable of translating all my bullets that said this is what I do. He wasn't capable of translating that into why he cared. So I went back and I really looked at my wording and my presentation mm-hmm. and I realized I mean I could be selling an elevator or a, a toaster oven. I mean it was new and innovative and all these bu- fancy buzzwords and it really wasn't clear on what I could do for him. So then I started thinking of all my successful clients and the results they were having. And I started rewording my presentation and I created a spreadsheet that, you know, I started instead of saying, we do this, I wrote it from his perspective and I called him back and said, can we go to lunch? And he said, I'm not buying from you, but Mm -hmm. if you want to go buy me lunch, I'll go. So he did. And I said, I'm not selling. I just want to go over these statements with you and you tell me if you can say this today, if you wish you could say this today or if it's not important. And I took a bullet that said, we will make your restoration faster, you know, your backups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I took that bullet and I reworded it to say, backups are a very easy process for me. And as soon as I said that, I watched his eyes and he just started talking and I was taking notes as, as fast as I could. And he was telling me the story about the CEO lost an email. No one could replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, people got fired. That's why he fell asleep. He had worked all night trying to find it and he didn't know what he was going to do. And the reason he was doing his grocery list was because he was so far behind because he was working all the time trying to get, you know, things fixed. And then, you know, I went to the, he goes, what's the next one? So I started going through these things and he pushed his food aside. He goes, can I stop you for a second? Can I assume you can do all this stuff? Is that why you were going over this? And I said, yes. 
And he goes, why didn't you tell me? And I said, this is my presentation I've given to you twice. And he said, nothing sounded familiar. And it was at that moment that I realized that it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And different people have to have that communication delivered in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, all these other people were easy. They translated my words into why they cared. But there's not always going to be those people that can do that translation. So if I upped my game and created messaging that was for that difficult audience, then all those easy ones are going to you know, follow suit. Mm -hmm. So he made me up my game and changed my communication style, which is what is today Biznostics. And this was back in early 90s that I sure. invented this thing. Um, but so it, it is relevant when you're teaching people like you and me, we know about all this you know, evolution of people and the changes and things like that. But there's a whole generation that's never heard of it. It's brand new information for them. And that's what I'm trying to educate is we all have to adapt our communications for the most difficult member of the audience. Then everyone else will follow suit as well. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that... that um... Yeah, as I was, as I was reading through the book, it it even though I th you probably wouldn't agree with this because you're fairly strong in saying that that your statements don't constitute questions because people are afraid of questions. But in my mind, they're they are questions. Um, and yeah, I mean, leading with that type of of information as opposed to saying what you do, but instead leading with with questions. And I I agree, not all questions are created equal. Um, is yeah, definitely a stronger, stronger way to go because you know presentations don't encourage a conversation, and you don't learn anything when you're presenting. You learn it when somebody else is talking. Mm -hmm. And so, well, the thing that I go ahead. you can't give, you can't questions don't have their place, but I uh, think it well, was overdone. Well, yeah, could you re could you repeat that? We garbled just a second. So, oh, go ahead, repeat that. Yeah. Same. <clears throat> I'm not saying that there's not a place for questions. We're never going to get rid of questions, but I do think in the, in the era of consultative selling, it was so overdone. I mean, I executed it, right? I was a salesperson. So mm -hmm. I lived this world sure. of, and I tried my hardest to make it work, but I could see the body language and I saw my clients go, how many more questions are there? And where are we going with this? And they were just like beaten down and tired. And then I started thinking, you know, if somebody asked me to do a service, do I do? I'm, sometimes I do it because I'm nice, but I don't want to do it. And if somebody, you know, calls me up and says, you know, I have a political servant click, you know, I just don't want to have that invasion, that fight or flight instinct gets engaged. Well, when but that's but that's to the point specifically because I think with surveys and and I think yeah, you know, you're right on this point. It's not is it's it's an interrogation, right? It's it's not a conversation. Yes. So the examples you yes. give and this is this is part of the problem we see quite frankly with with too many sales organizations today, especially those on the inside sales organization where they equip their reps with these scripted list of questions mm -hmm. that they feel honor bound to get through in a conversation they have with the uh, a prospect is yeah, it's it's interrogation. So when you're interrogating people, yeah, they reach their limits and they decide yeah, this is, yeah, I'm not learning anything. I'm not getting the chance to, because part of the way I, as individuals, sort of understand what I think is to express it and to verbalize it. And if you're not giving me a chance to do that, then I, I really don't know, you know, what I'm, what I'm learning here. 
Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, so part of the Visnostics is about visualization, right? That's what Visnostics mm-hmm. is, visualization diagnostics. So the diagnostics is where you, get, you know, replace the questioning. And when you, there's a whole bunch of little things that I got from, you know, Michael Bosworth, actually, from his neuroscience aspect of what great salespeople do. When you give, we all know, you know, right, as Sales 101, what are we taught about questions? Never ask a closed-ended question, a yes or no question, right? You want to get more information. And one of the exercises, I don't know if you did it or not, the money exercise. No, I did it in my, I did just did it uh, yesterday in my workshop and uh, everyone was paired up looking in each other's eyes. And I said, I'm going to say a word. And I want you to say the first thing that goes in, you visualize the words money. And then I just sit back and I listen to people talk, 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 talk. And I finally cut them off after five minutes. I said, it was one word, you know, you should have said a dollar, but we don't. When you, when you do a visualization stimulation in the brain chemistry starts engaging, people can't help. Like they want to talk about their feelings. They don't just see a dollar sign. They want to talk about why they saw a dollar sign. And that's what this, the power of Visnostics does is it gets your client to tell you exactly who they are. You know, you are who you are because of where you were when. They're compelled chemically to tell you more than you could ever get with a question okay well i mean i i yeah i i didn't really see the real distinction i still think questions have done a phrase effectively that you're basically what you're doing is is that i mean it's it's you're flipping it to a certain degree which is great i mean it's similar to what uh, orrin claff just wrote about in his book flip the script i don't know if you have a chance to read that um which i think is yeah is, is a good idea because you want people to be looking at it from their perspective and expressing things from their perspective because, yeah, your perspective doesn't count for anything. Right. That is so true. So, okay. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) time's gone by pretty quickly. We've already run over. Um, So tell people how they can connect with you and learn more about what you're doing. Well, just buy one of the books. I I highly recommend Visnostic Sales and Marketing, mainly because of all the reader success stories that are in there. And all through the book, I have exercises where you can communicate with me, and I want that engagement, and I want to help people. I have a vested interest in every single reader's success because I want to write about them someday okay. and share their success. So those books are available on Amazon, other places? Yeah, 42,000 bookstores worldwide, but Amazon seems to be where 90% of the books are bought nowadays. Okay. And if people want to reach out to you, or how can they connect with you? Um, just... I have a special email address that I set up for podcasts so that I can say, hey, you know, Andy, thank you. I've got, you know, lay it on it's us. Pod- podcast at DinahExec.com. It's podcast and DinahExec is D-Y-N-A-E-X-E-C.com. All right. Perfect. All right, Kimberly, thanks for joining me and we'll look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Andy. Good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join me. I also want to thank my guest, Kimberly Slavik. Join me again next week as my guest will be Craig Walker. Craig is the co-founder and CEO of Dialpad. And the primary topic of our conversation will be, is technology really helping sales? Is it increasing performance and productivity? And if not, what's the path forward to using it better 
to benefit all the salespeople. So definitely make sure we check this out. Be sure to join us then. Now, before you go, don't forget to visit andypaul.com. Uh, get your copy of my sales growth planner for 2020. Now, in it, I walk you through a step-by-step process to create an incredibly effective sales plan that'll help you hit your targets in 2020. Now, this is the same plan format that I've used throughout my sales career to generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So, for more information, visit andypaul.com forward slash planner. Get your copy. All right. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.